Hello and welcome to episode 55 of The Thing About Golf, a podcast series from Golf Australia magazine exploring that intriguing question, just what is it that so captures people about this game? Rod Murray's my name and alongside my colleague John Huggan, we have the great privilege of putting this question to people from all corners of the golf world, from the obvious, like players and administrators, to those with less of a profile from the worlds of architecture and writing and other various industries. Today's episode is a cracking chat between a couple of old friends, one of them being John Huggan, who joins me now. Huggy, how long have you known today's guest, Peter McAvoy? And give the listeners a quick thumbnail sketch of his resume in the game. Not a household name, but a very influential character. Yeah, um, Peter McAvoy, I've known him for more than four decades. Um, he was um, he was playing, he was a mainstay in the England amateur team when I uh, remarkably made my way into the Scottish team briefly in the early 80s. Um, before that, he'd, he'd won the British Amateur, if I can call it that, uh, twice. Um, played in the Walker Cup umpteen times. He went on to captain the Walker Cup team, chairman of the you know selection committee. He's done pretty much everything you can do in amateur golf. He won the individual at the Eisenhower Trophy, the world amateur team. Um, hell of a player. He was, um, he was very close to the lead in the 1979 Open at Lytham with about seven or eight holes to go until he realised he was one shot off the lead in <laughs> the Open with seven or eight holes to go. Yeah. <laughs> but um, had he turned pro, um, he would have, he would certainly have won tournaments on the European Tour and he might even have scraped into a Ryder Cup team before he was done. A legitimately and seriously good player. Huggy, he sounds like everything that you should automatically be not attracted to. He's English, Scots and England are like cats and dogs. He's a he's an he's a uh, an establishment guy. He's been a selector. He's been a part of a lot. He's the sort that you would normally be poking fun at for sitting in the RNA clubhouse with dandruff falling out of his hair onto his blue coat, isn't he? Well, no. Well, yeah, on paper perhaps, but um, he's exactly the opposite of that in real life. He's a he was kind of a member of the establishment who was anti-establishment and he's not actually English sort of, he was brought up in Scotland. <laughs> he's got a kind of, still got a bit of a Scottish accent a little bit anyway. Um, he supports Scotland in most things uh, except golf, um, but he should have played for Scotland at golf. I've told him that many times, but uh, yeah. he became the kind of marked man playing for England. He had a very, very long unbeaten record in singles playing for England at amateur level. Um, and I've always I've given him some grief, and I think it's mentioned in the in the podcast. Um, mm. He did a book back in the day, and uh, I, I didn't get a mention in the book because I was the last person that he beat while he was unbeaten. <laughs> so, so you're like the you're like the husband who loosens the jar lid for the yeah. wife, aren't you? You give it the first turn, <laughs> and from that point on, now he can be yeah. beaten. So it's, it's an incredible role. claim, an incredible claim to fame, really. But, yeah. <laughs> I was beaten by a bloke who then went on to get beaten by somebody else. Just uh, yeah, well, he actually he lost the he lost the very next day to Ronan Rafferty. That was the ah, there you go. Which he talked about, and yeah. funnily enough, when he tells that story, it's fantastic. And I was going to mention this. He's the first guest we've ever had, Huggy, who's managed to get a mention of Dick Emery into the podcast. Yeah, yeah. and for that, I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful effort on his part. Last thing, Huggy, he is particularly interesting, and I encourage people to really listen up when he talks about teams and team dynamics. Mm. He really shone in this way, didn't he, both as a player and as a captain and as a selector? Yeah, he had very firm views on um, on most things, um, which didn't make him that popular when he was a player with the selectors, but uh, he certainly knew what he was about. Um, he captained, the, I think, the Walker Cup team in 2001 at, when they won at Sea Island. He had Luke Donald and 
and he was captain at Nairn two years before that when Donald played and Paul Casey were the stars of that team. So, um, but the best thing he ever did as a England amateur team captain was pair Luke Donald with a guy called Robert Duck. <laughs> so they had Donald playing with Duck, which you have to do really. You just can't you can't miss an opportunity like that. Look, we, we were still talking about him because he did it. We'd still be talking about him if he didn't as well. Because yeah. you're right, that's an opportunity that doesn't come along too often. It's a fabulous chat. Uh, I'm sure you enjoyed it, Huggy. And it achieves one of the things this podcast sets out to do, as I said. Not a household name, Peter McAvoy, but a fabulous bit of oral history to be in the archives for people to listen to in 50 and 100 years' time uh, and really get some great insight into the game. So well done to you, well done to Peter McAvoy, and let's get on with it. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Okay, Peter McAvoy, thank you for joining me on the Thing About Golf podcast. I always start with the same question. What was the thing about golf for you? Um, what was the thing about golf? Well, it's not so much what was the thing about golf for me, really. It's what's the thing about golf? I, I just think there's such an obsession with pro golf, you know. And I don't think that's the thing about golf. I think the thing about golf is... People playing it, you know, people just having good fun playing it. You know, the game would still survive if there was no pro golf. But, you know, everybody, you know, 99.9% of what you read is um, all about... uh, I plead plead guilty to that. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, but, um, you know, I understand that the pro game has to stimulate interest and uh, it's an important part of the game, but it's not the thing about golf. Well, how did you get into it then? I mean, did you start off just by whacking a ball around a field or did you keep score? Or I mean, how competitive were you starting off? Because I know you were, despite your playing for England, which is a source of some, you know, pain for me in the past, um, you're really Scottish. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my, um, introduction to golf was the classic way. My dad played. He was quite a good player, um, down to sort of four handicap. And... um, Around Greenock and Gourick Golf Club, he was a GP there, and um, I used to follow him around, caddy for him, follow him around. Then he bought me some um, cut down clubs, used to hit balls. Then went up to Gourick Golf Club and uh, played with um, two friends, four holes used to play, um, and but I'd never played eighteen holes till I was fourteen years of age um, when we moved to England at that point, and then I'd, so I, I wasn't. Um, I was I was playing other sports as well. I wasn't really, uh, you know, any kind of prodigy by by any means compared well, to what you see nowadays. I was going to ask that. I mean, when did it become apparent that there was some talent there? I mean, were you even aware of it? It sounds like, it sounds like you weren't. Well, I, I I knew I was quite good at it because I was good at other sports, and I thought you know sports are all the same. And and um, I, I knew I I was quite good at it. I just hadn't really given any mind to it. I mean, my first competition the first time I ever remember playing a competition and I was playing off 36 and I went round in 84 for a net 48 and only won by a shot really yeah <laughs> so um and that got me very interested yeah um but um and then at age 16 I won the Warwickshire Boys Championship and I thought that w- I'd made it at that point mm. I mean I thought that was um uh, and I I was never I, I, I remain I've never been more nervous than playing in that right. I've played in Opens and Masters and um, Walker Cups and stuff like that, but I've never been more nervous than that. But what was the attraction for for that at uh, yeah, that stage? Was it the competitive aspect of it, or was it just the joy of hitting the ball properly? Oh, well, I think, I mean, I think golf's a fantastic game in that you you're only trying to improve on your um, own best 
best performance yeah. previously, you know. So uh, I think that was what I really enjoyed. It was the fact that you're getting better and you can measure it, you know, you, by your scores and stuff like that. I think that's that, that's one of the most attractive things. The flip side of that is as you get older, you can measure your deterioration, you know, which, which that's the stage I'm at now. Yeah, exactly. Me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And where did it take you? I mean, uh, you, Warwickshire Boys. I mean, you know, okay, Warwickshire Boys is nice, but um, yeah. plenty of people have won the Warwickshire Boys, I'm sure, and disappeared into the ether. Yes, I know, I know, but it it was the stimulus. It was the thing that made me want to play more. And then I, you know, I looked at, you get in the Warwickshire boys team and you look at the Warwickshire men's team and you think they're gods, you know. And then you get in the Warwickshire men's team and realise actually that they're rubbish. Um, and you look at the <laughs> England um, men's team and you think they're gods. And then you get in the England men's team and you realise they're rubbish. Even actually when you get to play in an Open and you play with some of the more journeyman pros, mm -hmm. you realise they're rubbish as well. You know, relatively Relative, rubbish. Yeah. They're not absolutely not what you no, thought at no, all. No, um, until you get to the very, very top, and then you realise they're very yeah. good. You know? Well, I was—I was, I mean, I went you know, not as far up at the tree as you did, but um, I was always surprised that that I was even able to play. Yeah. You know, initially, and yeah. until I got used to it, and then yeah. you moved up and on to the next level, or whatever. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I mean, that was the thing that I really noticed is every time I got up the next notch, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It wasn't anything like as good. I think the standard wasn't anything like. Always, You always felt like you were a slight sort of interloper, you know, that you, you, you shouldn't really be there, you know. But then you do scores that are competitive and therefore you, you should be there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was going to get to this question sooner or later, so I'm going to ask it, you know, sooner rather than later. Um why did you turn pro? Because you were clearly good enough. I mean, and, and if you were coming along now, you would turn pro. Oh, definitely. I would definitely turn pro now because, um, but the truth is, I mean, the, the nearest I got to it was um, I came 17th in the Open in um, 1979. But I'd actually, I was better, I'd done better than that. I was fourth with four holes to go, you know, so not with eight holes to go, rather. So I, I was in the mix, you know, and... Um, that year, I'd uh, I'd won the amateur the two previous years. Um, I'd won the Lytham Trophy and things, and made the cut in the Masters that year. So, I, you know, I felt like now nowadays, if you won two successive amateur championships, came seventeenth in the Open and made the cut in the Masters, somebody would give you a million pounds to turn pro. Somebody would give you a million pounds to turn pro. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, Nobody offered me anything, hmm. you know, and it coincided with my um, law exams later on in the year. And I thought, look, I've done so much of that. I better finish that. And then the moment had gone. Yeah. Well, what was your thinking, though? I mean, did you think, well, I'm going to sit in a law a lawyer's office for the rest of my no, days? No, no, I never wanted to be a solicitor. I only did that to appease my father so oh. that I could um, play golf, really. Right. But, um, I, my, but I did quite fancy the, I mean, you just look back and you realise how naive you were. You know, I quite fancied being like Mark McCormick. You know, I thought that that seemed like quite a nice thing to do. So, um, so when I finished my articles, um, uh, I, uh, I I set up a company and got a few clients. Gordon Brand Junior, for example. You know, I mean, good goodish players, yeah. and did a deal with Vinnie Giles out in the states and sort of half represented his clients over here but I was absolutely terrible at it I mean just what, 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 just what were you lacking oh just rubbish I was just so bad at it um 
I don't think I was sufficiently starstruck. Right. Um, mainly because, you know, like I say, I mean, I'd actually played with these people. Yeah. And I knew they were, you know, they weren't all that cracked up to be, really. Um, I mean, good players as they were, but, you know, I didn't see them as sort of demigods, you know. And as a consequence, I just hadn't got the passion or the drive, and I really was very poor at it. So that didn't last very long. You dabbled in the women's game as well, did you? I did. That was actually a bit more fun, though. Um, that was right at the uh, at the outset of the women's game. It was the WPGA, which now become the LET. But um, that was quite good because that was pioneering stuff. And um, I went out to the States to the um, LPGA qualifying school and basically took the best players that um, just missed their card, brought them back out of sponsor, um, brought them back and they formed a team and that became an integral part of the WPGA. In fact, at one point, I remember, because I was still negotiating with the sponsor to... uh, to do it again for another year, and and the very existence of the WPGA depended on them coming over, you know. So I was, you know, you know, quite an important cog in the wheel at that time. Yeah, it's pretty small beer, though, wasn't it? I mean, it, it was. It wasn't. Yeah. I mean, look, you were never going to make a fortune out of it. No. But nonetheless, it was quite like any pioneering stuff. It's quite interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the standard there was not good at all at that time. You know, the women's game now, the standard's very high, but in those days it really wasn't. Yeah, there was no depth to it for a long time. Not yeah. at all, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the, the psychology of that. I mean, you're sort of delving into the, the lower reaches of the pro game, having been at the very top of the amateur game. How did, did Was part of that that you looked at it and thought, I can't be bothered with this? Well, it was more, I mean, once I'd, once I'd naively tried to become Mark McCormick, okay, <laughs> yeah. I... Um, I, I, I then realised how the game worked and that I could see that the pro side of the game was very well looked after. I mean, not not like it is nowadays, but, you know, there were big companies like IMG particularly yeah. mm-hmm. who were dominating it and, you know, very you know, naive to think you could compete, really. You could go and work for them, but you, to, to compete against them would be yeah. nice. But the grassroots of the game was ignored. You know, and so I then got involved in sponsorships um, in the grassroots of the game. So the kind of thing where there'd be a sponsor, clubs would play in a qualifying event, the winner would go through to regional finals and then through to national finals and international. It was finals. a Ford thing, was it? It was Ford. Well, thing. yeah, there, there were a number of them, yeah. and I did I did that for about ten years because nobody else was doing it, right. and um, and actually sponsors and companies were very interested. Just in the time when people were wanting to get databases together. This was a, you know, these were pieces of paper rather than electronic. But, you know, we used to get paid by the number of pieces of paper with people's details on them. So it was the very early days of um, uh, direct marketing, really. And uh, and so we did it for a lot of car companies, a lot of big companies, um, and did that quite happily for 10 years. And that's why I got very involved in the grassroots of the game with handicapped golfers, senior golfers, yeah. all kinds of things. And I liked that well, because... That, it, it makes sense because there's far more of them than there are pros. There are, there are, million, there are millions of them. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I enjoyed that. That was, you know, because I like the grassroots of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when, when you ask, you know, what's, well, I can't remember what your question was, what's, what's golf about? Or what's, yeah. what's the thing about golf? What's the thing about golf? You know, that, uh, the, the, the grassroots of the game attracts me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like I like the idea now, especially of not going of going out and just whacking the ball around and not keeping score. Yeah, yeah. the score that's means nothing to me because of the scores you do. Well, that's that's part of it. Yeah. There, there's certainly an ego aspect <laughs> yeah. to it because yeah. I play so badly now. But yeah, I mean, but really keeping score, people shouldn't keep score. A lot of people don't. I mean, that's one thing I've learned is you know. So much of the game is structured around handicaps and competitions and new handicap schemes and that kind of thing. There's an enormous number of people who don't want to do any of that. Yeah. All they want to do is go out for a walk and play nine, play nine holes, and and that's it. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. No, you know, you know, it's a it's, that's me it's, now. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a big part of the game. There's loads of people like that. It's hard to harness those people though because. It's, if you're if you're trying to develop them, not that you should, why should you develop them anyway? But if you are trying to, it's pretty hard to do it. Well, um, they're just kind of touching the edges of the game, aren't they? I mean, that's right. hard to draw them further in. Yeah. I would think. But I mean, there's there's been big quests to try to um, get at the clubless golfer and try to you know get them organised, but they don't want to be organised particularly. No, they just like it the way it is. Anyway, I've, I've jumped you ahead a bit here. I, I, I wanted to talk a bit about your, you know, playing for England and Walker Cups and all the rest of it. I mean, you had an extraordinary long run of unbeaten playing singles for England. I did. I think I, I think I lost my the first game I lost was my twenty eighth game singles. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and I have to mention, of course, that my, my claim to fame in the midst of all this is that I was the last person you beat while you were unbeaten. Uh, that's right. Yes. Um, Which didn't rate a mention in your book. I was very disappointed. Sorry about yeah. that. But um, it's uh, yeah, I lost to Ronan Rafferty then. Yeah. Um, the, the next day, probably. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, I I I was struck. I mean, I was struggling with my golf at that time. And um, I remember I got on the last green um, and I had a 15-footer um, to tie, to you know, to keep my record. Yeah. And I left it short. And I somebody saying, I'm really surprised you left that short. And they didn't realise I actually had no control over this <laughs> where, I was, where I was hitting it at the time. And yeah. My putting had got so bad that... Well, that, that certainly explains how I managed to take you to the last screen the yeah. day before. <laughs> so. Maybe so. But... Um, no, so yeah, so I had a good, and I and I kept going. I mean, I was I was very successful as an international golfer. Mm. You know, my overall uh, record, and and it shows you're a bit of a self obsessed person if you keep these records. But it was seventy eight percent in the end, mm-hmm. um, and that's across. That is everything. extraordinary at that level. That's yeah. that's uh, England Walker Cups and Andrews Trophy, English universities, even that's everything. But it was seventy eight percent. So and my um, singles is just over eighty. So um, and and I, I can't really explain why that why that was because I, I I did beat a lot of people who were better than me. I mean, for you, example, you for example, um, <laughs> come on, but, uh, <laughs> steady. Yeah, uh, um, Ola Thabel, um three times, um, Darren Clark, uh, Robert Carlson, Peru Johansson. Um, Gordon Brand, Ronan Rafferty. I lost to him once, but I beat him the next time I played him. Um, you know, people who were, I mean, Nick Faldo, Sandy Lal in, in different contexts, but, um, uh, you know, they were, they, all those players were better than I was. And uh, But I, I, I managed to con them into thinking I was better than them, you know, I don't know. Well, it's funny you should say that, because, I mean, I, I remember sitting down after we played and thinking, you know, because you were always the guy that everybody in the Scottish team wanted to play. Uh, because you'd had this long run and everybody wanted to be the guy to yeah. to break it, obviously. Yeah. And I remember thinking, God, you know, if I'd just been a couple of shots better, 
And a few seconds later, I thought, well, he probably still would have beaten me on the last screen. Uh, you had that kind of match play aura, if you I, like. I, I, I cared an awful lot. Um, I cared an awful lot, um, probably more than most. I think that's the only thing I can really put it down to, why I would... And I was, you know, undisguisedly um, the kind of person who... I mean, I would rather win my match and the team lose. I mean, it sounds like a terrible thing, especially as you went on to to be captain. But it was true. Mm. You know, I mean, I just wanted my game. I don't think it made me a bad team man, because once I'd won, I was then very into the team and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But if you gave me the choice, you know, you can win and the team lose, or you lose and the team win, I'd take my win every time. I think that's just incredibly honest, because there is so much guff talked about how, you know, it's the team, you see them at the Ryder Cup recently, they're all talking about how, well, I I don't care if I go 0 for 5 if the team wins. What absolute nonsense. And I just don't believe that. No, neither do I. And when I became captain, I wanted a load of people who just wanted to win their own point. You know, you read so much about team spirit, you know, and then you read with the Ryder Cup, you know. I think team spirit, you always have. I've never been in a team that didn't have team spirit. You always have, especially if it's a national thing or or European tour is an entity thing. But but, um, you've always got team spirit. That's not, that's expected. Um, You know, it's not, that's not the issue. To me, the issue is, Level of expectation. That's what makes teams successful. Yeah. Um, and that was, the, that was the, I mean, going on to Walker Cup now, I mean, I, I don't know, jumping no, around a bit. No, but, just, I mean, just when, when, I, um, when I first became Walker Cup captain, I mean, our record, I, mean, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like played 33, lost 31, <laughs> you know, 1, 2. You know, it was just awful. And our expectation level was on the floor. I mean, we couldn't have... You know, you'd go into Walker Cup matches, and I'd played, um, I'd played five and won one, um, but in the four that we lost, I'd um, I'd always expected uh, when we when we finished the match, we we always used to get together and go, God, if we only knew how ordinary they were, yeah, we'd have approached that in a totally different way, and that always stuck with me. Um, and they always seem to win the holes at the end. Yeah, but there was, but again, it's expectation. You can actually prove it um, if you look at any league table in any sport in the world, and you look at home and away. You'll find that two thirds of matches are won at home, and one third are won away. So you've twice the chance of winning at home as you have away. Um, that's in the same normal rectangle of grass normally it might be a tennis court or whatever yeah. it might be same rectangle of grass against the same people you've got twice the chance of winning in one as you have in the other now there are certain things like you might get a bit of hometown referee and stuff like yeah. that but nonetheless that's an enormous change and that's because when you play at home you expect to win and when you play away you expect to lose and if you can change that mindset you can change everything um well, you were captain <coughs> Walker Cup first time in '99, which and yeah. you won at Nairn. Yeah. So the, did that change the expectations going into the next one? Uh, uh, no, yes, it did. But I mean, we had to change the, to win at Nairn first. I mean, I, I I went to the first thing I did was went to Sachi and Sachi, big advertising agency, and got a video done, because we had a really good team. You know, we had a really good team, and I just wanted them all to know they had a really good team. Um, and I think you know. We, we were better than them, which does help them winning. You, you know? I mean, I remember watching Donald and Casey playing yeah. together in that match. Yeah. And 
I remember thinking they could play in the Ryder Cup right yeah, now. No, they, you know, were, they were that good. We had a very strong team, but we just had to believe it because we did strong teams before and lost. You know, um, of course, once you you win one, it's easier to win the next one because the expectation. And we won the next one as well, and then we won that one after that. And actually, should have won the one in Chicago after that. We should have won four in a row. But um, that, is that the one where you didn't pick Rory? Yes. Yeah, that wasn't my greatest lectorial <laughs> <No>. moment. <laughs> but I mean, in mitigation, um, we got down to um, we got down to last place. I mean, we, I mean, we should have in, re- in reflection, we should have picked him first. But yeah. but we got down to last. The trouble is, Rory at that age, sixteen, he'd not entered hardly any amateur tournaments, and he'd entered loads of pro tournaments. And he missed the cut in every one of them. Yeah. You know, his stroke average was seventy nine. Yeah. But we still knew. And I remember getting to the end of it, and I was chairman, selectors, and we hadn't picked him. And I thought, you know, and I said, look, do you you think we ought to reconsider this? Because I just think we might be missing it. Well, who did it come down to, him or who else? Um, Brian McElhenney. Right. Brian McElhenney. Now, Brian McElhenney. He was a good match player, I remember. Brian McElhenney was the amateur champion, and he is... International record was played fourteen one fourteen, or something like that. Um, well, and he why, was, why was he so far down the list then? Um, because of because of all the rest of his record, really. Right. But um, but it came down to the two of them. We'd already picked a sixteen year old in Oliver Fisher, who'd come second, third, second, first, second. You know, so he he was straight in. Um, but it was very hard to leave McElhenney out. You know, given. You know that he was amateur champion and such a fantastic record, um, but uh, but the, the terrible thing about it was we picked the team, and then the open was quite soon afterwards, and I went to the AGW dinner, yeah, yeah. and that day Rory had gone round Port Rush in sixty one, yeah, <laughs> and the and the Irish table were sitting next to where I was sitting. And uh, giving me a bit of a hard time, but as I said to them, if I'd known he was going around in '61, we'd have picked him, you know. But it wasn't a great moment. And if we had picked Rory, we would have won. Who, who were the best that you saw and played against as amateurs? As amateurs, um, funnily enough, not not always gone on to be great players. Um, they, they flickered often. Um, Robert Gamez. Yeah, I remember him. Robert he Gamez. Played, he played at Peachtree. He played at Peachtree, turn pro, won, I think, pretty early on. He won Bay Hill, remember, holding yeah. the second shot and yeah. the last. Uh, I think he won twice, almost in his first year, yeah. and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, oh, God, I'm trying to remember his name now. Cause I mean, that's how guy, Gary Holberg. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gary Holberg in uh, 77 was outstandingly their best player. Yeah. Um, he did okay as a senior. He, 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 won, he, started, he won two or three times, I think. Yeah. But he, he, wasn't, he didn't turn out to be the superstar. No, but, I mean, he really did look like he would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there weren't always – I mean, there were – I remember Scott Hope being very good mm-hmm. at um, Muirfield. Yeah. Um, I remember Sigal was always good. Yeah, in a different way. He was, was he ever the best player? He was maybe mm. the second or third best yeah, player on every that, team. That's was about he? right. But he was a, and he was. I don't think he, Jay Sigal was necessarily all that gifted a golfer. I thought he was a real, got the most out mm. of everything that he could. Um, but it wasn't always the, the best players in the team weren't the. Um, 
He went the superstars, though. I mean, Mickelson was looked like he was going to be good, but he was by no means the best player in their team in '89. Mm. Um, I mean, so, uh, Gamers was m- yeah. much better. Yeah. But um, what about but then, the GBNI team? Well, Sandy Lyle must come to mind, surely. Yeah, yeah. Sandy, Sandy would have been. Um, I'm, I can't think of anybody that was better than Sandy. I mean, I, I thought Rafferty was very good too, um, but again, he fell away a bit. Yeah, he didn't. He Strangely, had, didn't last that long. I mean, no. he, he went to number one in Europe, played in the Ryder Cup, and then phew, it was he yeah, was gone. Strange, because he was gifted. It's not you know, you know, it wasn't. Um, he always he was always sort of swimming uphill a bit. He, well, he caused up, a lot of bother behind yeah. the scenes, didn't he, with the Irish Joe Carr, and he fell out. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was, uh, that was that was I remember that very well because I played him, um, and we did a really good game. Um, and Joe turned up on the seventeenth tee, and Ronan, I think, was one up. This is it, St Andrews, is it? St Andrews, yeah. yeah sorry. Um, this would have been the quarters or the semis of the European Team Championship, and Joe Carr turned up on the seventeenth tee. Uh, Rory, I think, was one up, but we were well under par. We were both playing well, and Rory was showing off a bit because that was the nature of him trying to hit it across the hotel yeah. and left it right and knocked it out of bounds. Right. And I eventually won in the nineteenth. And Joe misinterpreted it altogether, but he was a big lad in those days. Mm-hmm. Rory, uh, Rory, um, Ronan, Ronan, yeah. yeah. And um, he couldn't fit into his team green trousers, right. so he'd played in black trousers. And Joe misinterpreted everything and thought, you know, this bloke's not trying, he's not even wearing the uniform, he's trying to hit it across the corner of the hotel. So he dropped him for the rest of the yeah, tournament that, yeah. and made him wear the green trousers, which he definitely couldn't fit into. And I was saying he was quite a big lad in those days. So he walked about like, do you remember Dick Emery walking about? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He walked about like that for two days, just watching <laughs> the games. <laughs> yeah, you are awful, but I love you. Sort of thing. Right. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, and so anybody else come to mind? Um... Again, it's amazing the number of really good players who were the best players at the time who then don't come to anything. Owen O'Connell. Yeah. Owen O'Connell, 1989, I would say was the best amateur in the world. He played in the US Amateur after we won um, at Peachtree and was the medalist, so he, he led after the 36-hole qualifying. Turned pro shortly after that. Top 10 in his first three tournaments, which didn't surprise me at all. Uh, I thought he was going to go on to be yeah. a, a real, st- I mean, major winner type player. A year later, was almost not playing the game. It's amazing how these things happen. Well, they fall out in love with it. I mean, well, they, they, also they change technique. I remember seeing you know, Owen had a bit of a um, Eamon Darcy sort of approach to the game. You know, he was there was a bit of fiddling going on at the top of the right. swing, and um, I saw him about two years after he turned pro on a practice ground and he just cut that bit out of his swing so he now had a short yeah. you know no no fl- flailing at the top at yeah, all yeah. and he's just he was nothing you know he couldn't yeah. he couldn't the play. Irish are famous for that I mean from Jimmy Bruin sort yeah. of onwards yeah. yeah well he was one of them but god he was he was really gifted um, and he's somebody I thought would go on and do really well. Well, who, well on the other side of the coin then who surprised you how well they've done as a pro Colin Colin, Colin, Colin Montgomery. I would say. Why do you say that? Because I'm, you know, I always tell the story about playing the practice round with him at the '84 Amateur at Formby, which he, he then got subsequently got to the final and lost yes. to Lathabal. Now, at the end of '83, he wasn't in the Scotland team for the Home International, so he wasn't in the top eleven 
in Scotland at the end of 83 and he came back at nine months later June 84 and I played a practice round Colin Dalgleish was playing as well and I remember turning to Colin Dalgleish after about four holes and saying have you noticed anything and he goes yeah he says this guy's incredible and I, he was probably 21 at that point yeah it was an extraordinary difference yeah. I mean I don't, I'm not sure what happened well he uh, he'd have played in um, I played an Eisner trophy with him in 84 um, I got in the quarters of that form B Right. One, so I, I think I was due to play Colin in the semis t- right. until I lost. Um, but he was the, by the home internationals in '84 yeah. at Troon. Yeah, he was the best player in all four teams. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think Colin um, had great strengths, um, but I remember him out in Hong Kong in the Eisenhower Trophy, and this was still the days of stealing wood. It would still be stealing wood, wouldn't it? And um, he had everything, bar a bit of length. Because everything was left to right, mm-hmm. and with steel and wood, you know, it came off differently to the he's, way it does. He certainly used every technological. Yeah, he could. Yeah, and <clears throat> so it wasn't that he hadn't got he, he had obvious determination and uh, course management skills, and you know, all the things that really matter, but just lacked, you know, twenty, thirty yards of length. Probably mm-hmm. he was well behind everybody else, right. and then ste- um, metal woods came in. And he that that makes up that difference, yeah. and he still had all the other qualities, but um, but to go on and win whatever it was seven or eight orders of merit, I would never have predicted that. No, what, what do you make of him as a person? I mean, I, I mean, there was a bit of a lot of inverse snobbery going on in the Scottish teams at the time. I mean, I, I played alongside him once and played a lot of practice rounds with him, and he was you know he was posh. He was a posh Scot, yeah. and he was brought up in England, basically. I mean, he was he born was. in Scotland, but yeah. well, I, he came from I remember Leeds. him as being a Yorkshireman. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's when I first came across him, he was playing at, I can't remember, somewhere in Yorkshire. But his a lot dad, of people made fun of him, that was my point. Yeah. And he, but he, he stuck in there and, you know, um, proved, proved them all I, I wrong. Think, um, I think Colin, off the golf course, um, away from the golf course, is very nice, very good company, very affable. But he's got a trigger. I mean, he, he, um, he, it's part of him wanting to be such a good player. You know, he, 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 he doesn't like any kind of um, disappointment on the golf course at all. And that colours everybody's view of him, really. Yeah. And he was a bit stroppy. I mean, he, he could get very stroppy on the golf course. Yeah. I mean, I've seen him treat people really badly. But yeah. again, I've seen the other side of him as well. I mean, yeah. Before he and I stopped talking to each other in the wake of Indonesia... Um, we had dinner a couple of times a year on the tour, and the deal was that nothing left the table. Yeah, you know, I yeah. get all his gossip, and he'd get all mine, and yeah. off he went. No, he's, I mean, very good companion. Yeah. things like that. And I used to room with him occasionally, as, as you probably have as well. Very good companion, you know. But um, but he had, he, I mean, he really he whinged about his putting. But God, I thought he was a great putter. Mm, you know? Yeah, and he'd made himself a great putter. I remember him having to hold. Um, I can't remember how many putts it was from four feet in a row before he could go to bed yeah, type yeah. thing. And he would mean it and he would do yeah, it, yeah. you know. Anybody else that's, uh, that's made sticks it, out in that? You know, I mean, what about Gary Wilson home? He's, he's an intriguing figure. He to is. Make. He's the same age as me. And I was long done before he'd even started. And yet yeah. he went on to have this great yeah. amateur career. Yeah, well, like, I mean, so it's actually not, not that dissimilar to um, to um, Colin, really. Uh very short. And, I mean, I remember playing him in a county match um, in Leicestershire, 
and you know he was so short you couldn't even he couldn't even have considered him for international golf at that point and then metalwoods came along and again he had everything else and incredibly determined but he's a bit more complex than colin I mean, he's he's quite a strange chap um, in some ways. I'm so um, shocked to hear that. <laughs> yeah. um, but strange in the way that you know he would he would play in a World Cup match and take a, beat Anthony Kim, who was one of the best players in uh, the American team at the time. Again, somebody who's disappeared. But um, he'd beat him, and then the next morning or, or after the match, he'd be very subdued. Um, Gary, you know, off, you know, by himself, as though he'd been trounced, you know. And then he'll get trounced by somebody, and he's everybody's pal. You know, he was very difficult to relate to, and and and. Uh, but my God, if ever there was anybody that wanted his point, you know, uh, you know, it was him. So I'd have Gary in all my teams. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he never let you down. Yeah, never intimidated because all his life he'd been miles behind everybody off the tee, and so he's never intimidated. Now you've, you know, over the course of your long career, you've seen both sides of the selectorial, you know, equation, if you like. Um, you've been picked for God knows how many teams, but you were also left out very controversially, the one Walker Cup team. Um, how did all that impact on your attitude to being a selector or a captain later on? How did that affect your thinking? Um, well, it certainly affected my thinking as a player. I mean, it, because it really motivated me. Um, I was... Treading water a bit. I mean, I, I, I mean, Garth Majimsi and myself were both left out of that team. This is and 1987. 1987 Cup, Walker Cup, yeah, and uh, we were both left out of the team. And I genuinely, to this day, would say we were a number one and two player in the country, in the, in the UK, or GB and I actually. So um, we, uh, you know, it, it just it wasn't right at all. Um, and uh, but it motivated me. It made me go out and practice and. Um, you know, diet and, you know, work really hard. Mm -hmm. And so that was 87, wasn't it? So uh, in 88, I won the individual in the world championships. I mean, you know, which I'd not done before, you know. So it it made me a better player without any question. Yeah. Um, I got in the final in 87 at Prestwick. And I I was ready, you know. I I was playing Paul Mayo, who... With respect to Paul, I would normally be... Decent player, but not as yeah, good as you. I, yeah, would, exactly. I would normally be. And I did, I did outplay him to lose 3-1. and one. Um, But I outplayed him the whole day. I should have won, but I didn't. Um, uh, but I'd got a speech ready, and I was going to absolutely assassinate the <laughs> yeah. selectors. Yeah. Because it was perfect, you know, because it, it was only the week after yeah, the World Cup right. being played, and I'd then win the Amateur yeah. Championship would have been fantastic. Um, but then, of course, I lost, and nobody wanted to talk to me. So, so I never actually made the speech, <laughs> yeah. um, which probably was no bad. Can you thing. give us a flavour of what? We- <laughs> oh, I, I, it, well, it was only really that I just felt it was wrong. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just felt it was wrong. I, it, you know, I, I was going to do it on behalf of Garth. You know, you, you were going to sign it bitter and twisted, were you? <laughs> I was going to do it on behalf of Garth, which, which was fair enough to. I mean, Garth shouldn't definitely should not have yeah. been left out. Um, anyway, we all came back for the the following one, and we won. You know, for eighty nine, which we might not have done if we hadn't been left out. So, but I don't think the selectors were necessarily leaving us out for our own benefit in order for us to improve our game. I mean, is it right that the? I mean, my certainly my impression of it is that. The, when you're picking a team, you're really only picking the last two or three guys. Usually, yeah. Usually. Um, although you get... There was only one 
match where I remember that not quite being the case. And that was um, at Ganton in uh, 2003. And we were picking from extreme weakness. Um, we really hadn't got the, the, the Casey's and Donald's yeah. and um, McDowell's and Dyson's and people. We we hadn't got anybody that was of that well, class. Wilson was in that team. He was the best. But he play. was struggling that week, I remember. I remember yeah, but he was the best player in the team. Yeah. Uh, and he's gone on to do okay, yeah. but, yeah. you know, nothing like the others, you know. So we, we, we really hadn't got strength. We were playing on a shortish, by modern standards, bouncy, yeah narrow course, you know, and so we took the view, and I thought it was one occasion where selectors really did make a difference. I thought we I thought we played a bit of a blinder. I mean, selectors normally get yeah. criticised, but I thought we did the right thing and that we we left out people that, should, that were better players than we picked. Did you pick them for the golf course? We picked them for the golf course and for the match, in, the ones that were in form, and also we picked niggly little match players, you know, uh, of whom there were a number. But they weren't actually as good players as some of the people. We left out people like Richard Finch. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember who else we left out. There was uh, uh, Richard Walker, um, who were better players than the ones, some of the, yeah. ones, some of the ones we picked. But, but, but you know what it's like. I mean, there's nothing worse than playing somebody who just keeps Those guys you don't want to play. Up yeah. and down. And we, we picked half a dozen of them. And sure enough, we uh, we won the match, you know, against all the odds because they had a strong team mm. here. Um, yeah, I remember thinking it was ridiculous that you'd won that. You know, so. Yeah. Oh, we, I mean, I don't know how we did it really, but we did. And they did all the right kind of things, you know, and, um, uh, you know, chipped and putted our way to, to victory. Mm. I want to ask you about captaincy, and you've been in, there's much, much is made of captaincy, certainly at Ryder Cup level these days, I mean, McGinley, Paul McGinley changed the way it was done really, you know, seven, eight years ago at Glen Eagles. It's now become, there's there's two sides of the coin, everybody, now, there's, some people think, you know, captaincy is really, really important, and others think, well, it doesn't matter at all. Where, where do you sit in that, having, having been captained and been a captain? Yeah, um, well, my approach to captaincy really was to try and not make the mistakes that previous captains I'd played under. I mean, I thought that was my main motivation. I think there's... And what were those mistakes? Uh, I, I think there are certain practical things you have to be... I mean, I, you know, you need to know everything that's going on. You, everybody needs to know when they're going to be playing, what they're going to, what the uniform yeah. is. All those sort of real bread-and-butter type things they need to know. Um I think it's quite important role with the press, and I think you need to be the one that takes the blame. You know, you need to be. You you need to be. You know, it's never your player's fault. You've got to be the one. I mean, I'd get it from when I when I was made captain. Um, I was travelling quite a lot, so I used to go in, into Smiths at airports, you know, and get these sort of uh, leadership books. A lot of them are military. Oh, right. Just just read them, you know. Um, so I just read a lot, and a lot of the stuff was very. Common sense. It's all common sense, like everything, really. So you just you don't want to be a pain in the neck. You need to know all the things that you do. You need to be the one that takes the stick and takes the flak, basically. I mean, I remember even when we won at um, uh, at Nairn after the first day when we were losing. You know, going into the press tent and getting a getting well, you a, kept dropping Scottish people. That was your problem. That well, no, no, not not the first day. I, didn't. <laughs> not the, I got I got flak for. Um, because I said we were, we were a great team, 
because I was trying to build them up, obviously. Um, and then we were losing 7-5, and they were going, well, it's just the same as ever. And you've left two of the three Scots out all day tomorrow. What are you thinking type thing? That was actually quite... I mean, <laughs> that was a bit of an issue, really. But unfortunately, it was Lauren Kelly and David Patrick, and both of them had lost their games. And I was very conscious of the fact that here we are, in, you know, north of Scotland with three Scots and I'm leaving two of them out all day. And it was the reason I put Graham Rankin up yeah. first, you know, which I suppose part of me was putting him in there because he, he hadn't scored a point in Walker Cup up to that point. Um, but he was talented, Graham, you know, and so I put him there and told him that, you know, I wanted him to lead from the front because, you know, he had to bring the Scottish crowd with him. And it really worked. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure that I 100% expected it, no. but it did work, you know. And so you learn something, you know, that actually yeah. all he needed was a pat on the back, really, instead of everybody getting at him all the time. Yeah. And what's your, what's your theories on partnerships and order of play and that kind of thing? Well, partnerships, I think, are the easiest thing in the world. I just don't understand why the pro game don't do it more. The first thing I do when we're out in our first practice rounds, I go to everybody confidentially and say, who would you like to play with and who would you not like to play with? Because I don't think there's anybody better to play with in a foursome or a four-ball come to that than the person you want to. Hmm. And in every occasion, that's been my partnerships. I've never had a problem. You know, don't put them with people they don't want to play with and do put them with people you do want to play with. That's it. Yeah, and it, it, what about style of play doesn't come doesn't into it, or it. length of the team? No, or? because they've all thought about that. Yeah, you know they 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 only want to, nobody wants to play with somebody that they don't think they're going to win with. Yeah, and then for the singles order, all you had to do was go to Gary and say, um, "This is give, Gary Wilson." Gary Wilson, yeah, yeah. You say, "Give me a list and order of people that you'd like to play with in the foursomes, and that is your order of, you know, of <laughs> best players." Because because all he cared about was winning a point, so he'd go look down the pool, right. or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever the order was, yeah. and then you know what your your best players are. But to me, it's just it's the obvious thing to do. You know, you just pick people with who they want to play with, and it and it works out. The pieces just fall perfectly. They always do. Because who, who um, did you ever have much people saying guys they didn't want to play with? It's quite hard to get that information out of people, yeah. and and you had to push it, yeah. and you had to make them understand that this was never going to go any further. But it was an important bit of information because that you just do not want to put people with people who don't want to play with. Yeah. You know? But and he also had a bit of a sense of humour. I mean, I, I I never forget that you telling me years ago that you put Luke Donald with Robert Duck for obvious reasons. I did, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Donald only, and Duck I had mean, to play together. I mean, there's, there's all these good theories about how you um, you do pairings, but when you get a moment like that, you've <laughs> yeah. just got to take it. You can't, you can't resist something like that. Yeah. Then uh, so what did anything go horribly wrong? In the midst of all that lack of theorising, if you like, no, I think um, uh, my my record as a captain, and again, just shows a bit of a bit of an obsessive, is very similar to my record as a player, mm. um, and um, and foursomes, you know, very much, you know, we you know, we almost, we, you know, I won nearly eighty percent of the matches, so I think I pretty much got that right. But it's you know, there's, there's no, nothing clever about it to me. It's just common sense. It's what. Well, a child would do, yeah, isn't it? Right. You know, that, yeah, you, that's you what, can make it as complicated or as simple yeah. as you want. Yeah, and I can't believe you know when I watch Ryder Cups, you know, just how <laughs> stupid they are sometimes. You know, <laughs> For example, well, it's it's like if you have a, if you have a fifteen point match, so 
five foursomes, like the home international, yeah. five foursomes, ten singles, 15-point match. The chances are it's going to be quite close. It's probably going to be nine, six, eight, seven, probably. Now you'll get some ten fives, you might yeah. get some eleven fours. But it's generally speaking going to be in that thing. So, so that means that the end matches are going to be crucial, you know, singles number eight, nine, and ten are probably going to be really important. Yeah. So the logic of putting all your best players out first, to me, is stupid, you know. So you just flip it over or, you know, not it's not quite as simple as that, but, you you know, you definitely make sure you've got good players yeah. down at the bottom because it's probably going to depend on yeah. them. It's a bit like the... Um, the football, um, the uh, England playing in the final against Italy, penalties, five penalties. Now, it's going to be close. Yeah. You know, five penalties are going to be close. So penalty number four and five, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on. Probably, it might be a case that it's not happening, but almost certainly that's going to be. So you have your two best players taking those penalties. You don't have two people who've never taken a penalty before, you know, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's just, to me, it's just right. common sense. You, yeah. know, I don't, you know, you just can't believe they do it. And like America would be losing and put Tiger Woods out last. You know, if you're losing in a two-day match or a three-day match like the Ryder Cup, you know, the one thing you've got to do is get back in it and then hope for the best. But you've got to get back in it so you have your good players. Yeah. You don't yeah, you've hope got to... that your weaker players are somehow going to get you back in it and then have Tiger Woods irrelevant at the at the bottom. But it happens time after time after time. But to me, it's just common sense. Again, it's like a child would do it, you know. Yeah, it's not... As you say, you can make it as yeah. straightforward as you like. Yeah. Well, that's... You know, but I can't. Sometimes I just can't believe how stupid they are. But I mean, just going back to your, I mean, Paul McGinley, I thought was a very good captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's hard to predict who's going to be very good and who's not going to be very good. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you make of all the stats that they have nowadays? I mean, you know, I mean, I remember asking Harrington in this forum about that, and he he leaned more towards instinct than he did stats. Yeah, well, I think I mean. You can tell how concerned about stats I am. I mean, yeah. you know, but I, but I think the stats sort of almost look after yourself themselves. If you ask a player who do you want to play with, I mean, because they they've they've worked out they yeah. you know they, they you just know, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, they know who they want to play with and why, and and it, it might not not be anything to do with you know the, how long they are, how straight they are, whatever it was. It might be that they just feel comfortable yeah. in their company and that makes them play well. And that's not something you can ever have a stat for. No, that's true. It's instinctive. But it's, it is hard to predict. I mean, like McGinley, who was, you know, better than Journeyman, but you know, not at the very top end of the pro game. He was always and, in the bottom half of every Ryder Cup team. Yes, and, but successful in the Yeah, Ryder absolutely. Cup. Um, and the, and he, he had evident passion. Um, and I thought he, he went about it very thoroughly. I think he's a bright chap. Mm, he is, yeah. Um, I thought he went about it. And I thought Podrig would be very good too, because he's another bright chap who has passion as well and has really made an incredible career for himself, I think. But he didn't look comfortable to me. I don't know why, it just didn't look like it was something... Well, maybe he kind of knew that, you know, we're kind of up against it here. Yeah. I mean, it just didn't look... Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, look, the main thing was they're miles better than we were. And if we played them 20 times, we'd lose 20 times. I mean, I do think that's the case. Right now, would you? I think so. Look, maybe maybe we'd win one or two. But, you know, I think that there was quite a big difference. And I think we'd got a few... 
who were getting towards the end of yeah. their career, and they hadn't really, you know, they were they, they, yeah. they were all. Justin Johnson was the oldest player, yeah. in their team, yeah. and, he, and maybe the best player. Yeah, so um, you know, so I think that 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 might have coloured a bit, but it just didn't seem to suit him. Hmm. Whereas, yeah. whereas, but you're never going to look good when you're getting. No, hurt, no, no, that's true. Know. That's true. I mean, that's the main that's the main thing. But um, whereas you see Podrig in his heyday coming down the stretch. Having to hold putts, he absolutely looked like he yeah. belonged. You know, for a period he was a great player. Yeah, and and the gutsy is, oh. you know. Well, hold, yeah, I mean that, well, that PGA uh, one in the states, you know, he had no putting, business winning that. Yeah, you know, he tell me that himself. Yeah, yeah, but he, uh, you know, he has, he has great qualities. I think, and he was bright enough to go to Bob Torrance um, when he not long after he turned pro because he had everything you've touched on earlier. Oh. Except he couldn't hit the ball well enough. No, and he's and, a cutter. He was over the top. And he? Bob, Bob has made everybody. Well, Bob in his time made everybody hit the ball better. Yeah. and that was the only thing Podrick yeah. needed. Yeah, you know. So. I mean, I remember Podrick as um, as an amateur. He was a very successful amateur because you know he he had almost everything. But yeah, that as annoying you say, short game. But he he was a bit over the top of everything, you know, and um, and then that went, and uh, he became what he became. I wanted to touch on um, the perks. So you, want, you touched on earlier, you won the amateur twice, which is obviously probably the highlight still of your career. Um, the perks of that, that come with that, I mean, playing the Masters, playing the Open. Yeah. Talk to me, particularly about well, the Masters. I mean, well, I, the Masters, um, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, it's a perk to play in it yeah. in the first place, but the additional perk, particularly when I played in it, was uh, the draws you got. And that's not quite the same now. You st- you still get to play with a. Well, I think they've sussed out that the amateur champion is is almost always hopeless relative to these, yeah. <laughs> the people he's playing with. Yeah. Well, possibly so, but I mean that was still the case back in. in well, the yeah, 70s. but you you were better than average. Yeah, I mean, since then there's been some real duds. Yeah, but there were there were rules in those days. I mean, for example, the first year I played in it, um, John Cook was the US amateur champion. Um, and he was what they call the ranking amateur, and he would play with the defending champion. And John Cook got injured or something, I can't remember. Um, and that meant I became the ranking amateur. So I played with Tom Watson, who was the defending champion. Now, the amateur champion, I think the American amateur champion may still play with... There think, is a formula, but I don't, I'm yeah, not sure what it is. He, he still gets a very good draw, but the um, British amateur champion now plays with Sandy or something, you know, I mean, with respect to Sandy, but yeah. he's getting on a bit, you know. That's right. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, so the draws were fantastic. I mean, the people I played with, I mean, I played with, um, first year I played with Tom Watson, second round, because they used to change every round in those days. Uh, second round I played with Lee Elder in the year when Lee Elder, <laughs> year, year when Lee Elder had um, been the first black man to play in the, the Masters. So that was like yeah. a fantastic draw. Second year I played in Nicholas. Um, then uh, third year I played with uh, Sam Sneed, which is like even better, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. you know, cause you're, yeah. yeah, because you're playing with some, you know, you've almost you've almost covered a hundred well, years. Well, right? I, can, I made the case in print that you can make a case for Sam Snead being the greatest player in the history of the game because he was great longer than anybody else has been great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I played with him. He's probably about my age now, actually. He was late 60s. And I was um, 27 or something, 26, 27. And I was a strong player. I mean, I would, yeah. you know, I would have been up with everybody but the be- the very longest um and i had a really good drive off the first tee i remember and and sneed got up and knocked it past me 
you know, and I thought, oh my God, but his putting was shocking. Ah, yeah. He was also very grumpy. Was he? Right. He, um, I remember, I remember introduced myself on the first, um, in the putting green to him and we walked from the putting green to the first tee and a little boy came running across this is like a man who needs 68 or something with a, with a pencil and a piece of paper asking for his autograph and he just looked down at it and said what's that and that was it Dear. walked on <laughs> but um but his putting was shocking yeah. he was side saddling at the time yeah yeah well, give me a, a summary of those people that you just mentioned, I mean, they were talking, you know, gods of the game there. Yeah. Um, what were they like? Um, well, Tom Watson was incredibly friendly to play with. Uh, his, his golf was not quite what I expected. Uh, at the time, he was hitting quite a big ropey hook. Um, I mean, he he actually did the same score. We both did 73s that round. I actually, for years, I thought I'd done 73 and he'd done 74. I was corrected recently. Mm. But... Um, uh, and, and when he came in, everybody was going, oh, that's fantastic, fantastic, you know, doing the same. I was going, well, I know where my scores are going in the next three yes. rounds, and I also know where his scores. And sure enough, he then did 67, 67, 69 to my 75, 76, 77. You know? Yeah. So, um, so his golf wasn't quite what I expected. His putting was very strong. Um, but he was incredibly friendly. I mean, to the point that I, I'd, um, we were in the 15 fairway, and he'd asked me what, tournaments I was playing in and of course I was milking everything I could for the being amateur champion so I was going off to the Italian Open followed by the Dunlop Masters followed by the amateur followed by something yeah, I was going all over the place and um, he goes he says goes you travel more than I do and he, he said hang on a minute I'll just hit this literally <laughs> in the Masters hit, yeah <laughs> and he hit it onto the green yeah. second shot and came back and went so you're going to four different countries <laughs> you know it was like yeah. but he did yeah. hang on I'll just hit this no, like he was, medal yeah, he was so for a while, talking about the monthly medal. Um, I mean, my real claim to fame in the Masters was in the first year um, where I made the cut because I'd gone over 10 days early and I'd, I made the cut because I'd got used to the greens and stuff like that. Um, but uh, last round, I drew Dick Sidoroff, very good player. Yes, I know Dick. Very good player at, at the time particularly. But to say that you know, myself and Dick Sidoroff were an unattractive pairing in the last round of the Masters. <laughs> it's a, an understatement. Yeah. So I, we actually played, because we were out, um, whatever time we were out, but when we got to Amen Corner, um, all the leaders were going out off the first tee. So because there's not many stands at Augusta, you know, everybody's up yeah. up near the top, near the first tee. So we played Amen Corner with nobody watching in the last round of the match. Right? Nobody. And I mean nobody. There was a bloke. We Two of us, two caddies. That's pretty good. There was a bloke picking litter up, but I didn't count him. No. And nobody watching because everybody's up in the first tee. So that's my real claim to fame. Yeah, um, Nicholas. Um, <laughs> not many people be able to say that. <laughs> but that, I mean, it was you, like... Just you, you and Dick. Yeah, but you said it was like the monthly medal. It yeah. genuinely was. You had yeah. to slap yourself. Uh, in fact, I remember Dick said, urging me on going come on come on because I was getting a bit yeah. down on myself for some reason and uh, you know he was because you, know, you couldn't yeah. lift yourself really um, Nicholas was uh, I mean as a golfer um, a different level altogether I felt from from well, pretty much everybody else I ever played with to be honest again friendly though I mean I actually found the friend the, the better the player the, the friendlier they were really yeah. um, so he was uh, 
he was nice. I played with him in the open as well. He was he was nice to play with. Um, Who wasn't? Give me the other side of that coin. Who who disappointed you? Not just as a player. Funnily enough, the ones that disappointed me would would have been the more journeyman pros that slightly. See, I'm a bit reluctant to actually mention his name here. But but I played in the Don. No, nobody listens to this podcast. No, I, I dare say, but I still don't think it's. <laughs> I'm not going to mention you his name. You can tell me but, afterwards. But, yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. But there was it was a British Ryder Cup player, and I played in the Dunlop Masters at Saint Pierre, 1978ish, something like that. And in those days, uh, pros were allowed to tap down spike marks, and amateurs weren't. Mm. There was a strange, interesting, strange thing that was happening at the time. Anyway, I did well. I, I, I had a. Um, I was. 68, 72 or something, first two rounds, doing quite well, and then drew this player who reported me after the third round for tapping down spike marks, said I shouldn't have been allowed to do it because I was an amateur. And I thought, oh, God. (laughs) It was as if you were going to take any money at the end of the week. Well, I know, but surely we're all playing under the same rules, you know. know, And, um, you know, I thought, you know. I mean, the, the, were you penalised? No, no. The officials laughed at it, you know, because I was because it, it was it was the rules of the tournament. It right. wasn't, you know, yeah, yeah. but amateurs in an amateur tournament weren't allowed to touch around spike marks, and uh, but pros were. It was a strange thing. So I found that the while the really good players were, to whom I was no threat, um, you know, were very friendly, but the one the sort of journeyman who. I would have thought I was as good as, you know. Um, they, they, they were less pleasant. Well, I was going to ask you that, actually. I mean, my view of you is that you would have you would have scraped into a Ryder Cup team. Yes, I think I would have done. You I know, think that, uh, I think that was the sort of standard yeah. I, I was. I would have, I'd have done something one year to, yeah. to just, about, just about make it. But I'm not 100% certain how fantastic a life that is. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, if you're that kind of player... Because almost the worst standard of player I think you are, you can be is good enough to hang on to your your card, but just having a miserable time the whole yeah, time. Yeah. You know, just about having enough the, money. Yeah, know, the, the ones I feel sorry for as well in that is the is the guys that were that I played it with and against that were turn pro and they weren't quite good enough. They were close. Yeah, but and, but and I've had people say to me, I mean, ridiculously, not really knowing how good I was. I mean, I wasn't even close to being that. So I've got no regrets. But the people I feel sorry for are the ones who were just on the edge yeah. of being good enough and not quite. Yeah, but but those are the ones that keep their just about keep their cards. They're most they're missing the cut. That's two, what I mean. Two th- those at the time, yeah, yeah. and I think that's a miserable life. Oh, you know? absolutely, yeah. Um, but I and, and I think you know you get um, there's so much coaching going on nowadays. You know, with um, in national bodies and stuff like that. And I've been saying to the England golf, for example, you know, you want to get because most people turn in pro, the vast majority of them are not going to be successful and they're going to be struggling. And I said, you know, Mark Mooland, been a pro for, I don't know, he's, he's played thousands of pros to it, pro terms, and he's all over the world. He's always out in the Far East and stuff like that. I say, you want to get him in to consult with these players because that's what they're going to be. They're going to be, you know, yeah. what do you do, Mark, when you've made missed the cut in the Singapore Open and you're playing in the Indian Open next week and you haven't got a flight 
you know, what do you do? You yeah, know, exactly. Because he'd be like a world expert in that. I mean, if you couldn't, Nicholas wouldn't have a clue. No. You know, but Mark Mullen would, you know. And really, you know, it's been a bit more practical about what, because what, all these kids that are now turning pro that are not going to make it. Yeah. Well, um, the trouble is, um, how do you view the fact that they've got so many places to play? When they do turn pro, you know, at lower levels, the Euro Pro Tour and Alps Tour, and there's one in Germany. That, I, I mean, they're, they're well, in no, any number of places to play. The, the whole thing's been um, conspired together, hasn't it? Where the rules of amateur status. I mean, I'm really pleased to see them freeing up. I think that will help a lot. I think that, I think they've they've been brave. To have gone as far as they have, and they slightly surprised me as well. But I think that's going to be a good thing because up until now, the rules were um, basically if you want to be an international golfer, you've got to be full time because the standard is such that you, you've got to be full time. Yeah. So you've got to be a full time golfer, but you can't have any money. Now, if you can think of a better um, way of pushing people into the pro game than that I don't know I don't think there is one I mean I think that's that's the most unsustainable position you could ever have taken you've got to be full time you can't have any money so everybody's been pushed into the pro game and of course the commercial world react to it that's why all these tours are are there now because there's so many players and they've all got to be um, they've all got to be soaked up somehow Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean anything I mean they're they're not to me a pro golfer the, the only role that they perform is as an entertainer. They, they, they perform no other role at all. Yeah. So they're entertainers. Now, if you're playing in the Alps tour with nobody watching, you're not an entertainer. No. So you're not sorry. a pro golfer. Yeah. I mean, you might pretend you're a pro golfer, but you're not. You know, unless you're not. It's a good point. You know, they're not pro golfers. They're just, they're, they're just non-amateurs because of the rules around to golf were so strict. I mean, I've um, made myself very unpopular um, by nagging about the rules of amateur status for many, many years. Um, because I always thought the, the best way of doing it was to define a pro and everybody else is just a player. So don't define an amateur, it's just too difficult. And don't worry about money because there's never going to be any anyway. Yeah, yeah. Plus, we're all breaking the rules anyway. I mean, I mean, you and I used to go to Ireland every year and play in the tournament at Carlo. I mean, they, you know, I got my flights paid for, they put us up, they fed us and watered us. And that's that's, and that's just a very small example. And, and it's got much, much worse. And, and one of the reasons that I think they've freed up or are going to free up the rules around status is because if you're a very good player playing for a college in America or playing in a national um, squad in Europe, you're getting all these benefits anyhow. But if you're not so good, you can't have the benefits. Now, there's no reason why there should be one level of allowance for an amateur player. And then if you're not quite so good, you can't have any of it. You know, so they're saying you can have it. You know, everybody can have those benefits now. But yes, that's right. I mean, there was, you know, there, there is. so, um, but it did push everybody into the pro game. I mean, you know, the fact that you, you know, it was a struggle. And also just the way golf works, it's, if you're quite a good player, playing around your home course you go around in 67 and you pick up the paper and you see that Tiger's gone around in 67 at the, the, the Blue Doral or something yeah. and um, the Blue Monster Doral and, and you, you make a comparison and also everybody's good shot's good enough you know if you hit a five iron purely to a foot there's nobody else can do a better shot than that. That's that's that is as good. So so everybody makes a false term of reference. Whereas, in, like in tennis or something, if if you play Andy Murray at his best, you know it's pretty obvious that you can't 
compete, you, you know. You couldn't. I mean, I used to play squash. When I worked at Golf Digest in America, I played squash at lunchtimes a yeah. lot with a guy, uh, Dave Higdon, his yeah. name was. And he was a good tennis player, good yeah. college-level yeah. tennis player, yeah. really good player. Yeah. And he, I used to just beat him at squash, but he used to always say, well, you know, if we're going to play tennis, he said, you won't even be able to touch the ball. Yeah. And I said, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. we went out, and he, yeah. and he served to me, and he was right. Yeah. I couldn't touch it. No. And he was three levels, four levels down from Andy Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so. Well, squash is a good example, actually, of a, of a sport. If you're a little bit better than somebody, you win, every, you, you win everything, you know. But it's because you have to return the, the, a better player's shots. When golf, you don't. So you get this false term of reference. So that's another thing that conspires to get everybody turning pro. And you've got, I mean, you know, the amateur game is only left with well, what used to be youth's golf. Um, that's all it is now, really. I mean, the, in fact, I'd even go further. I don't think there is an amateur game anymore. I think there's a pre-pro game. But, um, but the amateur, the idea that... You could have somebody with a job, an accountant or something. Living well, in. I used to work in the bank when I was playing. I mean, nobody's yeah. doing that anymore. No, you know. no they, they, those people don't exist. In fact, the only people that can't play in the amateur championship now are amateurs because everybody else is on a national squad or, right. or something. They're all 20. It's lost a bit of its romance, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, the, you know, the idea that you'd get, you know, I don't know. Do you remember Reg Glading? Yes, of course. He'd only ever play in things that were in the southeast of England. Sort of well, he's the guy George. that fell down the bunker. That's he's George's, the one, yeah. yeah, the big bunker. And yeah. uh, Craig Lawrence, I think it was, yeah. that he was playing. Because yeah. does, does that mean it's my hole? <laughs> and he's lying there with a broken leg. I know. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, somebody like him, age 50, would enter. He was a good player. He never moved out as, you know, and he'd get to the semi-final or something and there would be a real local interest. Yeah. That's all gone now. Where, where do you stand on the, you know, the ongoing debate on the equipment's part of it? But are the players now better than the Nicholas generation, Watson? Yeah. Or is it just because of the equipment? Well, I think they are Where do better. you stand on that? I think they are better. I'll tell you where I really notice it is... Um, Arm shots from bunkers, you know, to, you know, mm. long bunkers, yeah. you know, like yeah, yeah. 180 yard yeah. bunkers. You know, now we all know how hot, you know, you're occasionally you get a really good one, but you know, a lot of the time you wouldn't, you know, I just never see anybody. They go in a bunker now and they always hit it onto yeah, the green. But, but then you're, you're watching the players at the top of the leaderboard uh, yeah, playing sure. their best as sure, well. But, so. Sure, but it's one thing, I, I mean, I do think, look, in every sport people get better. So there's no reason yeah. to think that golf wouldn't. It's compounded by the fact that equipment's made yeah, it It's easier. hard to compare. That's what I find. It is hard to compare. Look, I, I blame myself slightly because I was on the equipment standards committee for four years um, where we looked into to all this sort of stuff and it was right at the time with the change in the grooves yeah where we didn't go anywhere near far enough um you know the, the idea was you you know to everybody's spinning the ball so much but they still are really you know i mean it's not any well it's probably a little bit different but it's certainly not different enough um but the real killer was um metal woods i think that yeah. was that was uh, that was when the game changed. Well, I always feel, and I think I've mentioned this before on somewhere, maybe on a podcast, but um, the one, guys like Nicholas Colsarts from Belgium, magnificent long iron player, mm. and gets really no benefit from that whatsoever. No, because well, everybody middle, can hit their hybrids like he can hit his long iron. Yeah, but the middle bit of the game's gone as well. You know, I mean, you you go back you, now. You you are in danger of sounding like an old fart here. You know, yeah, because, I, 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 you know, I've been accused of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, you go back to the 60s and 70s and you'd got people who'd reputation. You were talking about Neil Coles earlier mm. before we started chatting. You know, beautiful iron players, you know, just that 
doesn't exist anymore because because you thrash it off the tee as hard as you possibly can and then you find it and then you hit some kind of lofted iron even on 500 yard long par fours and then who's got the best short game and that and, and the middle bit the 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 lee trevino hitting the fade in with a four iron and somebody you know that's all it's almost gone i mean i know they hit I mean, I'm involved in golf course design now. If you now, get to that. if you're now wanting to get somebody to a long shot into a green for a par, not for a par five, but you know, you can only really do it with a par three. Yeah, you can't do it with a par four anymore. Not for not for top players, because a 500 yard hole, Rory carries at 320, yeah. runs as much as it runs. So 20 yards, say three fours, like 160 yards, a wedge or a nine yard. That's a 500 yard, you know. Well, well, let me rephrase my question then. Uh, is the game better now than it was back then? Well, I think I, I think, or it's, is it not? I think it's a lesser game. Um, I think, uh, but then again, that's old fart talking because you know you do get young youngsters now think that hitting the ball miles is is the thrill of it. You know, and I think the tours think that. I think that they yeah, um, the game's are, been dumbed down a bit at that level. They are resistant to um, any changes which. Um, the USGA and the RNA might make because they believe that the thing that keeps viewing figures up and therefore um, money coming money coming in yeah. is is people hitting ball a long way and you know Deschambeau been a really good example of it but Tiger Woods in his day as well you know it's another example of it but it does make it very one dimensional and I personally think the game is much more one dimensional at that to level be. yeah yeah it is and and um, you know. The, the, there aren't the same you used to get the Gary players and Manuel Pinero's and Bernard Gallagher to a lesser extent you know who won using different skills it, it's which bomber is putting well this week is I, mean, basically, I was arguing I've said this a million times but I'm going to say it again that you know how can the game be better if nobody plays like Seve or Lee Trevino yeah I know but basically, the, the winner is which bomber is putting well this mm. week. You know, that, that's all that really is boiled down to. So I think it's got very one-dimensional. And I'm all for trying to... Well, I, see, I think it's very hard to do to wind back. But I, I would welcome it if they could do it. But, you know, it's there are many considerations. There are the tours to consider. Equipment manufacturers who've invested so much money in within the rules, you know, You've got to consider them. But, you know, I think the USJ and the RNA should be on a higher plane. They should be talking about making the game, keeping the game as it was, with every aspect of it, with artistry and the RN play being part of it. Doesn't, you know, but it hasn't worked out so far. I mean, oh, cricket's the one, you know, where the aluminium bat was well, brought in. Baseball, and then, they banned the metal bats as well. Yeah, but, but the aluminium bat was bat, was was played in the morning right. and then banned at lunchtime. Yeah. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Never never used but it. The same with the javelin. They, they had to restrict the javelin because they were mm. starting to throw it. It was getting dangerous. Yeah. So they just made it heavier or whatever to yeah. make sure so they couldn't throw it as far. Yeah. I mean, that's always the thing that perplexes me about golf is that we've... We screw around with the venues to to fix it to save the equipment rather than mm-hmm. the other way around. And of course, some venues have gone, you know, because they're just too short. Sunningdale is the classic example. Yeah, Sunningdale, but Ganton yeah. mentioned yeah. earlier, mm-hmm. um, Prestwick. Yeah, well, Prestwick maybe for other reasons as well, but you know, they're just too short. Um, I mean, we're doing some. Uh, I was going to ask you about your course design. Yeah. yeah.
just your overall kind of philosophy of that before you get into it. Well, I mean, um, my most interesting project at the moment is Druid's Glen, which is um, going to be remodelled next right. year, which we're doing. Um, 7,000 yards long. They would like it to be an Irish open course again. 7,000 yards is, is just not long enough. No. So we've got to find three or 400 yards. Now, Druid's Glen, I think, is 30-odd years old, 32 years old or something. 7,000 yards 32 years ago was long enough. But now you've got to be 7,400 yards. Mm-hmm. I mean, where are we going to be in 30 years' time? You know, it's, I do wonder where they're going to play. You know, yeah, I really yeah. do. But, I mean, great, great venues you know, are being lost to the game. And Which makes no sense to me. I don't get that. No, uh, but look, it's it's it's. I mean, I've been on the committees. I've seen the threats from industry. Yeah. Um, um, you know, the, you can see it from their point of view as well, and and you cannot you can see it from the pros' point of view because at the end of the day, if you're a pro organisation, bringing money in is what you do. Yeah, you know, that's They're a business. That's yeah. what you do. So, you know, why would you want to, you know, have an altruistic view of things when it's going to maybe hurt you. So that's what that, that's why they think like they think. They're going, they are going to run out of places to play. They are. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing then is everything takes longer as well, yeah. you know, which, you know, because you have to walk so far. So what's your brief then when you when you go in and design a, or redesign oh, or fix all, a... They're all, they're all different. I mean, but most of your work is related to equipment. It's it's moving bunkers, it's moving tees back, trying to find extra length. You know, everybody's carrying over the bunkers, you know, so it's, it's all related. And it's been great for um, golf course designers because... Um, you know, there is all this work that otherwise yeah. wouldn't have been there. Well, there's a lot of redos. So, so there's another body there that, you know, have a strong vested interest in the thing continuing, really. Not that they would say that, but, you know, that they're still getting work because of it. Yeah. Um, so so the practical manifestations are, I think, um, if you go back to the 30s, cross-bunkering and, like, cross-heather um, mm-hmm. was quite a popular thing, you know. And then it went out of fashion for some reason. But I can see that coming back because... Places like Walton Heath of that. Yeah, that's right. But I can see it coming back because um, you've got to you, you make people... Make, you know, just bombing it miles down the fairway, you know. How do you stop that? You, yeah. know, you know, just putting cross penalty across yeah. is one way of doing it you can't grow rough up people think about growing rough up but in the end of the day it affects the yeah. pace of play. and if you do that you end up everybody plays the hole the same way i mean yeah. I, I remember playing the pro-am at wentworth the first time they changed wentworth yeah uh, 2010 it was just before graham mcdowell won the u.s open and i played with them in the pro-am hmm. and we we walked off the 18th green which has been modified again since then but i remember saying well a terrible hole graham and he goes well what do you mean i says well i said you're graham mcdowell and I'm me, and we just played that hole in exactly the same way. Three woods, six iron wedge. And he thought about it for a minute. He goes, yeah, you're right. He says, I shouldn't be playing the hole the same way as you. Mm. And I said, yeah. It's nice. Well, it's true. It was true, <laughs> yeah. though. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, absolutely true. I mean, yeah. and it, it's nonsense. Yeah. You know, that's what you end up with. That's yeah. the problem. Well, there's that. Or, you know, people go, well, you know, make the penalty for being errant worse by growing rough up. But then that has such an adverse effect on pace of play for, you know, the club player who's losing balls and they hate it. So so that's too simplistic. I think cross penalties will come back in a mm-hmm. bit more. And par threes are the only other way you can do it. We, we've just done a, 
um, a few holes out in Woodbrook Golf Club in uh, south of Dublin. Um, we've got a par three. No, this won't be used by the members much, but it's got a tee in at 247 yards. Because if ever you get a big tournament there and you want somebody to hit a long iron, I mean, it's, it might even only be a four iron for them or whatever it might be, but, but it's the only way you can do it. You can't do it with a par four. So, so you know, they're, where they're, does it end then, Peter? Well, it's up to the. I think it's up to the governance of the game, and and there there will be a fight because um, you've got equipment manufacturers and the pro game who are the ones with all the attention, who don't want it. You know, and uh, and it's hard. I mean, you saw the reaction of Mickelson to the length of the driver. I mean, he's slagging off. And that's nonsense. I mean, who cares about that? I, I know. That's nibbling at the edges. I know, but he's slagging off amateurs, yeah, or amateurs yeah. making rules and stuff, you know. But that's a prevailing view amongst the pros. Yeah, it will a be. A lot of them. It will be, because it becomes us and them. Um, you know, but the, but in fairness to the RNA, you know, and the rules people, they do consult very thoroughly, because they're very aware of all the, you know, all the the cases made. I mean, you turn up for a committee meeting, you know, there's a pile of letters from solicitors saying, "Don't even think about it." You know, um, so it's well, that's the, that's the worry, of course. Well, yeah, yeah, but everybody's very conscious of it. But at the same time, you, you're there to protect the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I get a bit impatient with it all. I mean, it's taken forever. It seems like to me, but I do have a certain sympathy with the RNA in the USGA because they've got to cover every base, as you said, and they've got to have get to the point where their lawyer can stand up in the courtroom and say. We've done everything we can yeah. before we got to this point. Because yeah. if there's a loop, if we've missed something, yeah. it will be pounced on in the court. And I, and I actually think they're very good. It's why things take so long. You know, all this yeah. consultation and stuff, you know, which is still going on with um, uh, the ball going too far. But the but the noises coming out, particularly out of the USGA recently, have been quite bullish. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. But just drawing a line in the sand. The trouble is, if you draw a line in the sand... But people continue to get bigger and stronger. That well, that, I, I, I get that. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything to do about that, well, but except it, for except for the the um, javelin example. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, where you, well, have, you, to, you have to bring it back yeah. because they're getting bigger and stronger. You have yeah. to bring it back. So, in order to retain, you know, the skill level of the game, um, you know, you may have to bring it back. But you're going to get so much resistance to that. So I don't know. I mean, it is a it's a real problem with the game. I think we're getting close to the end here. I want to go back to the you you, you mentioned at the the Open in nineteen seventy nine um, when you were close to the lead near mm. the end. Um, I want you to try and describe what that felt like. And well, <laughs> and did you think, oh my god, what am well, I doing? I, I did yeah. absolutely. The um, I was I think I was line twelfth going out. Um, and I was playing with Bill Longmuir, who'd led after Lovely the first guy. round. Yeah. Very nice chap and very good-looking lad at the time. Mr. Basildon, he was back in the day. Oh, was he? Right. Yeah. And he um, and there were a load of girls that had T-shirts following him and stuff. Yeah. Um, you sure it was him and not you? And I'm pretty certain it was him. <laughs> but um, anyway, the uh, off we went. Anyway, it was really windy. And um, I, I played well, and I was out in about level par. Um Part the tenth, I remember, and a good drive down the eleventh, and a, uh, the eleventh was par five. Yeah, it was a driver, a driver off the fairway, and a full nine iron. Give you an idea right. of the strength of the wind. Yeah. So as I stood over my nine iron, um, somebody from the stands shouted, "Come on, Peter, you've got a chance!" 
<laughs> and I, I, I genuinely hadn't even considered it. Right. And I went back, and there was a big, one of those big yellow scoreboards, and I looked up, and I was lying fourth, four shots behind. Yeah. But the people who were ahead of me hadn't played right. as many holes. Yeah. And this was a day where you were dropping shots rather than yeah. gaining shots. And I hadn't given it a thought. I really hadn't given it a thought, but I was now giving it a thought. Um, and I hit a beautiful shot straight at the flag, and it was which was over a bunker. I hit the top of the bunker, dropped back in, took six. Yeah. Um, dropped a shot at the next. Missed for a short putt for a birdie on the um, 13th. Yeah. Um, and then got plugged under a bunker. Oh, after a, it's after, over at that point. Then. After a good second shot, which yeah. didn't come off the wind on yeah. the 14th. Yeah. And suddenly I dropped, whatever that was, four shots. And I'd gone from fourth to, I don't know, 14th or 15th, something like that. Now, if that was the Lytham Trophy, I'd have gone from leading to one shot behind yeah, yeah. and I'd still be fine. But at that level, you know, you, and these weren't bad mistakes. They were just little, little, mis- little mistakes. I mean, the one the plugged was a bad one, but, but there were little mistakes which anybody could have made and one was for a birdie, you know. But there's just a rush of people go past you. You know, Christ, what, you know. And then, and then you're just back in the pack again, you know. How did you reflect on that afterwards? Did that, did you think, well, thank goodness I didn't turn pro. I'm not, you know, did it make you think you weren't as good as you thought you were or what did it make you think? Um, I think over time you sort of, it, at the time, I, I thought I was a bit unlucky, particularly when I got plugged. I thought I was a bit unlucky. But actually, over time, I realised that, you know, the more you practice, the luckier you yeah, get. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, no, I, 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 I'm, look, I have no regrets about not turning pro at all, because I think I would have been um, journeymanish with a couple of good years and maybe sneaking in a Ryder Cup team or that, but I don't think that would have made. You wouldn't a ha- have enjoyed it, would you? I don't think it would have made a happy life. I'm not a natural traveller. I don't particularly like. I, I hate the. In fact, I flew for the first time in about eighteen months, um, a couple of weeks back. Because I've been going over in the boat to Ireland, right. work in Ireland, yeah. and I like the boat, but I go to an airport. No, immediately I hate it. You know, I just. You just just don't like it at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, plus yeah. it's one way of avoiding the A seventy seven to Stranraer. I mean, yeah. Let's face it. I know, I know, but there's a new bypass at um, at uh, Mabel. Is there? Well, it's not open yet, oh, but right. nearly open. So um, that'll help. Well, we might go back to Turnbury then. Uh, finally, that was oh, the, the last thing I yeah. wanted to talk to you about was um, when you and I set this um, podcast up. You mentioned your meeting with Donald Trump. Yeah. Pre presidency, I think it was. Pre presidency, yeah, just just pre presidency. And you and you had the audacity to tell me that you quite liked him and you know you kind of felt a fondness for for donald which um, is a rare thing these days well i had um had a long, <laughs> long meeting with him a couple of hours and it was all about golf um because he was wanting to synchronize his um i think he's got 16 um resort type places mm-hmm. doral and turnbury and yeah. Dunbeg and stuff like that. He's wanted to sort of synchronise them, I and that's sort of work I have done in the past. So um, anyway, we got talking. He was just remodelling the course at the time, and Martin Ebert the, mm-hmm. was there, and um, and his son. Um, what's his son's name again? Uh, Doesn't matter. Anyway, he was there, yeah. and um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing because it wasn't. At all what I expected. Um, I expected a very sort of bombastic, you know, what you see on the telly type thing. Yeah. 
asks questions. I mean, I would say in a two-hour meeting, I did 80% of the talking, which I would have thought would have been the other way around. Yeah. His, his lawyer was there, a chap called George Soriel as well. Um, and, um, you know, me, I'm incredibly knowledgeable about golf. I mean, and, and mm. interested in every aspect of it. Right. Um, we had to, uh, at one point, he was doing up the hotel as well at the time, so we had to go and check the ballroom or something. And uh, I remember walking down the corridor with him because he said, come and we'll keep talking while we're, while we're walking. And he was reflecting on the price of everything, and he knew the price of everything. I mean, this is a man who'd got, mm. you know, this empire. Yeah. Um, and he knew everything. And I remember talking to his lawyer afterwards, and he said... Um, well, you've just seen what that meeting's like now. And I've got these notes, because he sits there taking notes, and he's got 40 points. He said, we'll now come back here in three months' time. He makes no notes at all. And he'll remember every single thing. And he'll ask me whether they've all been done. He says, it's unbelievable. Every, and he does this every week. Like, amazing memory. Um, just not the person I thought. But he was so... In the end of the day, he was so Scottish. Really? Yeah. yeah. With well, an, of course, he is half Scottish. With, yeah. He's half Scottish. Which with, we with an American quiet. accent. <laughs> it was Scottish, but you, you sort of forget the accent after a while. And you yeah. just look at this bloke, and he just seems so Scottish and so into Scotland as well. You know, really, yeah. very. So it wasn't he wasn't the bloke I expected at all. He was extremely impressive. Well, given that, I mean, what, why do you think he behaved the way he did in so many different ways outside that room? Well, he, he he's he's a bit of a showman, isn't he? I mean, you know, I mean, like I was thinking about it. You know, has there ever been a more successful American? You know, because he's made fortunes as a businessman. He's got to the top of show business and then become president. Has anybody else ever approached that it's, level? It's of hard success? to imagine anybody more famous in the world. No, but well, yeah, yeah. but you know, it's a heck of a a lot of things to have been very successful, and I don't, I don't think you achieve that level of success by being a bit of a shrinking violet, really. You know, and of course it comes across as, as I mean, a lot of people hate him, but a lot of people love him. You know, it's it's a near fifty-fifty job, isn't it? Yeah. But he wasn't the person I expected, and I, I think I got a bit of affinity for him because. Um, Would you vote for him? I'd certainly never disclose that. <laughs> but um, because of his Scottishness. Because right. I felt, you see, I get slightly, because I feel a real 50-50 job, you know. You know, I born in London, played for England, lived in England for 50-odd years, but heart and roots in Scotland. And I'm a real 50-50 job. And, I, you know, I really struggle with it sometimes, you know. You know, where do your affinities lie and something? I felt he was. Who do you cheer for in the England Scotland matches? It changes. It changes rugby, it's England, football, it's Scotland, which is very odd. I mean, if it's it's England, Scotland, football, I'm as Scottish as I can be. And if it's England, Scotland, rugby, I'm as English as you can be. That's really weird. I mean, it's just, just the way it's broken. Yeah, well, I remember asking you years and years ago why you weren't playing for us. Uh, you, you never really were able to explain it, I don't think. No, it was simple, because um, when, I, when I got to sort of scratch when I was 18 or whatever, and uh, all my friends entered, the English amateur was at Burnham and Barrow, were quite close, relatively close to where I lived, and they were all entering it. So I w- entered it, and I was qualified because I was born in London. Mm-hmm. 
And I, at that stage, I wasn't thinking I'm going to play for England or yeah. anything like that because I was more interested in rugby, really. Yeah. But um, but that was it. In those days, once you'd, once you'd played in the English Championship, that was it. So then as I got a bit better... Yeah. Although my- it's not universal. I mean, we were talking earlier. I mean, I'm going to expose Peter Dawson, the former RNA secretary here, because he claims to be Scottish, but he played in the English amateur I back know. in the day. I know. I well, mean, you can't have it both ways. Well, Sandy Lau was my first partner for England. Yeah. You know, I mean, then became a sort of legendary Scot. Yes. Um, but he was, there was nothing but Scottish blood in him. No, that's true. And Gordon Brand... Was, was the same. Um, well, he played for Scotland actually. Yeah, but he had but, to. He was born in Scotland. All oh, right. Yeah. So he, he, all right. he, he got, the, got the choice. Yeah. But I mean, he was Bristolian, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Listen yeah. to him, you know. Yeah. Um, so um, Ken Brown was another one. He played. He didn't play it. Um, he played for England boys. Boys, yeah, he might have done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a mess at, at sort of pro level nowadays with um, with other sports. You know, it's just just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. I mean, Scotland actually are one of the worst for rugby. They had. Oh um, yeah, we've got grandpa. Yeah, you know, if your granddad was born somewhere yeah, or but flew over Scotland once, you're in, in the twenty-eight man squad for the last um, uh, Six Nations, there were eighteen people born outside of Scotland. Now, I mean, born outside doesn't mean mean yeah. everything, but but uh, yeah, all you need is a grandparent. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I'm going to ask you one last question, Peter, right. before we finish. Um, in the midst of all this, all the things that you've done, uh, one thing that you're most proud of, the highlight, what would it be? I think it would be winning the individual in the Eisner Trophy. More than the amateur? Yeah, because I, th- I thought it was hard. And I, I, I remember it was in Sweden, 1989, and... Um, we were out late, Owen O'Connell and myself, we were out late. I remember w- walking around Stockholm with him, just so nervous, because we knew we were in with a chance of winning. But ever, it was massive crowds. I mean, real pro, 20,000 people there. Right. We were playing with Sweden in the final. There was a lot of pressure on. And you were playing, I mean, whereas I like my individual successes, you know, but we, you were playing for you, because the Eisner Trophy is the team. Yeah. Really. And um, I just remember... As much pressure as I've ever felt. Windy day, nasty course with water everywhere, and surviving it, um, and winning well in the end. Um, that was that. That was where I came off feeling. That's about as good as I can do. That's about as well as I can play, and yeah. as good as you know, an achievement as I can do. I would say that was probably my. It's that of winning the Warwickshire Boys. Well, that the, obviously the Warwickshire Boys is it's a major. Where's your boys? Was um, there was Andrew Carman in the field? You remember oh, Andrew? Yeah, I do. Pip Elson, do you remember? Him? Yes, he turned pro. He, you know, rookie the, of the year one year. Yeah, was. so it was. It was a pretty, yeah, was a pretty, pretty yeah, impressive. Something, field. something to be proud of. Yeah. And on that note, thank you for your time, Peter. Okay. It's been great talking to you. All right, John. Thank you. Yes, some genuinely fascinating insights there into all aspects from the game from somebody who has held some pretty privileged positions. I hope you enjoyed that chat and that you've made the effort to follow the show on your preferred podcast app. We release episodes every two weeks, and that's the best way to make sure that you don't miss any. That's it for episode 55, and I look forward to your company again in two weeks' time for episode 56 of The Thing About Golf. Golf.